And my guest today is Jeff Rakes, the visionary behind Microsoft Office. After leaving his hometown of Ashland, Nebraska, Jeff went on to graduate from Stanford and then got his first job working at Apple Computers. He worked alongside Steve Jobs for a little over a year until Bill Gates recruited him to Microsoft in the early 80s. Over the span of the next 30 years, Jeff saw Microsoft grow from a 100-employee firm to a multi-billion dollar business. When Jeff left Microsoft, he went on to manage the $38.7 billion endowment of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. As he'll speak to in my interview, Jeff never forgot about his Midwestern roots. He partnered with the University of Nebraska-Lincoln to develop a world-class computer science program. He has also invested in multiple Midwest startups, such as Huddle. Some of the advice he gives, I'll take with me throughout my life. I hope you enjoy what he has to say as much as I did. To the regular person, innovation appears to be happening all around us. However, that may not be the reality. Fortune Magazine and the Wall Street Journal suggest our country is on the verge of an entrepreneurship crisis. Data from the U.S. Census says that there is a declining rate of new business creation and new jobs from startups and small businesses. My name is Nick Kastner, and fixing this issue is outside of my comprehension. But our reaction should be to talk to the outliers, a group of people who share a common goal, to disrupt an industry. Along with Alec McChesney, this is the Commonwealth. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Rakes. Jeff, thanks for coming on the show with me today. Glad to. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of your first tastes of technology was buying an Apple II computer to help better manage your family farm in Ashland, Nebraska. How did you use that tool to help solve the, uh, the problems around the family business? Well, that was a great experience for me, and it was really one of those pivotal moments in my life. I was at Stanford University, and I was learning computer programming in part because my degree program, Engineering Economic Systems, uh, was based on being able to do computer modeling, and I was thinking that I might go to the U.S. Department of Agriculture and work on ag policy. So this was something that I was learning for what I thought would be my my career, but a career in, um, you know, in agriculture and agricultural policy. While I was at Stanford, my brother, Ron Rakes, uh, who was a professor at Iowa State University in Ag Econ or Agricultural Economics, had returned to our family farm. And I hit upon the idea that this new tool I was learning to use, a personal computer, those were just, you know, microcomputers were just brand new in 1978 and 79, uh, I hit upon the idea of using the microcomputer, the personal computer, to be able to help my brother, you know, in running our farm with uh, leveraging his time and his management expertise. So I proposed that we buy an Apple II computer for our farm and that I program it to do farm accounting and farm analysis. Uh, tools and the idea was to help my brother who was going to quickly be consumed with the day-to-day operations of the farm have the kind of tools that would help him in the important management decisions and so that was a that it was a pivotal moment in in my career and in my life 
Yes. After uh, after teaching yourself um, uh, computer science on that Apple II, you went to go work um, work for Apple. How did you um, How did you realize your your passion was in software while employed at Apple? Yeah, one of the the things that attracted me to Apple, I I wasn't sure I wanted to work for a corporation. As I mentioned, I thought I would go work for the USDA for a while and then return to our family farm. But there was something about the company, Apple Computer, that I found very intriguing. And, of course, I enjoyed using their, their product, the Apple II, to help on our family farm. Because of my background in computer modeling, Apple asked me or gave me a job offer to work on a very, very new product called VisiCalc. Uh, now, for, for those of you who are under, say, 45 years of age, you won't even remember VisiCalc. It was the first electronic spreadsheet. It is the grandfather of Microsoft Excel. And so my first job was to work on the original electronic spreadsheet, and within the first year of its introduction, I think it had only been in the marketplace about about nine months. And as I was working with VisiCalc or the electronic spreadsheet, I realized just how malleable, just how versatile that this software tool was for all kinds of different business problems. Uh, the idea that I could uh, go in and, and listen to somebody's business issue that they were dealing with and quickly model it for them was incredibly uh, exciting. In fact, I discovered that people would come to me while I was working for Apple Computer with business problems that they just didn't think could be solved on a spreadsheet. And one of one example was a perp chart uh, project management tool. And they said, well, I bet you can't do a perp chart on VisiCalc. And I think I probably stayed up all night uh, figuring out ways to get uh, VisiCalc to calculate a perp chart as part of project management. And then you come into work the next morning and you show them that you were able to use the software to solve that, that issue or, or solve that problem and their eyes would light up. And that, to me, was addictive. That was the magic of software. That's the thing that got me so charged up about what computers could do. So I would say that the, the two or three things that I learned most in Apple Computer were, number one, uh, I, I learned that what I really loved was software. Uh, and that, to me, that was more important than the actual computer. It was what you could do with the computer, and that's what software is about. The second thing I learned is hardware companies, and Apple was definitely a hardware company in their DNA at that point in time. Hardware companies are more about how to use software to sell their machine as opposed to thinking of software as life itself. Uh, and so those are the two most important things that I, I learned at Apple Computer. Now, there was a third that ended up being very important, and that was stock options. <laughs> I learned about stock options at Apple Computer, and that turned out to be very important to me for my next step in my career. Yes. Um, how, how long were you at Apple? I was only at Apple about uh, a year and a half, maybe even a little less than a year, year and a half. 
you eventually left Apple, which was one of the uh, leading personal computer companies at the time, to go to a relatively small, 100-employee, 12-million revenue company called Microsoft. What, um, what about Microsoft attracted you, uh, attracted you to the company and away from Apple? Well, it was interesting. Uh, when Microsoft first reached out to me, I wasn't really that interested in, in Microsoft. First of all, I was in Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, we thought everything that was important about computers was happening in Silicon Valley. So the idea of moving to Seattle was not something that was on my radar screen. Uh, but this crazy guy named Steve Ballmer uh, came down to uh, Mountain View, California, which is near Apple Computer, and took me to lunch, and he described the company to me, and he described that they were building a new function called product marketing, uh, and I was interested in, in that because it has to do with overseeing the design and management of products and so I was somewhat intrigued, but not that intrigued. I mean, it's this little software company. Who knows if it's going to be successful? And But there was this personal uh, circumstance. My sister, Mary Jo, who I'm very close to, had moved to Seattle. And so if I agreed to interview with Microsoft, I was going to get the opportunity to get a free paid trip uh, to go to Seattle, and I could see my sister. So I thought, what the heck? You know, I'll go ahead and do an interview. Uh, not really interested in the company, but I'll go do the interview and, and uh, you know, see Seattle and see my sister. And that was in August of 1981. And for those of you who haven't traveled to Seattle, I'll tell you that uh, Seattle, especially in the summer, is one of the most beautiful places on earth and so it was actually absolutely stunning i had a great time seeing uh seeing my sister i was so busy at apple computer i told microsoft i'd only do the interviews on saturday so <laughs> they lined up a whole bunch of interviews on saturday uh during my interviews uh steve Ballmer kept walking me by this room uh, and it was a locked door, and he said, I can't tell you what's behind that door, but it's really exciting. And then I go to a next interview, and then he, he'd bring me back, and he, you know, we'd walk by that. He says, whatever's behind that door is really exciting, Jeff. It's really exciting. <laughs> and so, you know, I, being at Apple, I knew their rumors uh, that were that the idea of PC was coming. So it didn't take me a lot of brain power to figure out that what Steve was implying was that they had an IBM personal computer behind that locked door, uh, which was to be introduced a few months later. And so I was intrigued. But the other thing that struck me about that day was in the hallways, there were all of these different personal computers that were stacked up. I mean, there were computers from Japan and from from uh, personal computers from uh, some of the big guys like Digital Equipment Corporation or uh, there were these CPM80 computers. So there were computers, personal computers from all these different manufacturers. And the common thread was that Microsoft was doing software for all of them. And I thought to myself, well, I don't really know who's going to win 
in the hardware business, but I do know that Microsoft's doing software for all of them. So, so during the day, I got more and more intrigued by this company. And my final uh, interview of the day was with Bill Gates. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to describe, but when you sit down with Bill Gates, that level of intellectual horsepower, that level of energy, that vision and enthusiasm for computing, you know, he just exudes that. And so, you know, I'm chatting with Bill about what I'm doing at Apple Computer and how he sees software uh, in the software business developing, so on and so forth. And so, you know, by this point in time, I'm fairly excited about the company. And, um, uh, you know, Steve Ballmer then finished up the day by making me a job offer. And one of the funny stories about that job offers is, you know, he offered me a, you know, pretty good salary. Uh, wasn't great, but it was competitive with, with Apple and, and, and then I said to him, I said, Steve, how about stock options? Because I had stock options at Apple Computer. And Steve says, oh, yeah, 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 we, we've got stock options. And I said, well, Steve, tell me about your stock option program. How many years do, over how many years do the stock options vest? And he said, well, how many years do your options uh, vest at, at, at Apple Computer? And I said, four years. Steve says, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what our program is. <laughs> so I, could, I, I very quickly realized Microsoft didn't have any stock option program at that point in time. So uh, as I later confirmed, I was Steve's guinea pig for creating a stock option uh, program uh, for Microsoft. And, and so as I said earlier, uh, the third thing that I learned at Apple Computer Stock Options became a very important part of uh, my opportunity uh, in my, my career, the wealth creation, uh, which you know, has benefited my philanthropy and what I do there. So uh, it took maybe a few weeks after that for us to come to a final agreement, but I did uh, decide that my passion was software and Apple Computer was really about hardware. And even though I was going to end up, uh, you know, leaving leaving Apple Computer for something that could be more risky. Um, it was it was a bet that I was willing to take. Now, there's a, a, a funny bookend to that, that whole episode, and that was on November 2nd when I announced Apple Computer that I'd be leaving to go to Microsoft. And uh, during this period when I was negotiating with Microsoft, uh, Steve Jobs had asked me to join the Apple Macintosh. would have been the sixth person on the Macintosh. Uh, for those of you who've read the book or watched the movie, I would have worked for Joanna Hoffman. And uh, I turned Steve down. Uh, Steve, is a, Steve was very passionate. He was a, a great visionary. Uh, we used to describe it as being dragged through the Steve Jobs reality distortion field because he was so good at kind of articulating this vision. And I predicted that Steve would be upset when he heard that I was going to Microsoft. And sure enough, on November 2nd, about 2 p.m. in the afternoon, I get a phone call 
uh, my office and I pick it up and on the other end of the line is, is Steve Jobs. And Steve goes through, uh, asks me what the heck I'm doing and he's very, uh, he's clearly very intense in his, his voice. And I said, well, you know, I'm very attracted to Seattle. I can afford to buy a home. And he shot back at me that I could buy a home in Scotts Valley, and, you know, which, you know, be a long commute, but he was right. I could do that. And, uh, you know, so at first he was very, um, uh, very intense, very pressuring. And then he launched in to this fascinating description of how Microsoft was going to go out of business. <laughs> and, you know, it was just, you know, it was just so Steve Jobs. He was just so clear and convincing. It was being taken through the Steve Jobs reality distortion field. And at the end of the conversation, I said, Steve, you may be right, but in my case, the, the downside, if there is any, is I could just go back to our family farm. And then I hung up on him. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's just one of those, those moments in your life where uh, you really remember it. And for me, that's one of them. I really, you know, I remember that conversation and, and his passion. I Frankly, I didn't really want to work for Steve. I didn't uh, admire his leadership style. It's not very Midwestern, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was much more attracted to software and Seattle and, and Microsoft. So it was November of, of 1981 that I made that big move. I was uh, probably about 100 employee, uh, employee number 100. And uh, the company in the previous year had worldwide annual revenue about $12 million. And so... We were quite a small company in the overall scheme of things, but we were very proud of what we were building in software. Let's take a quick break to have a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by the music festival, Lincoln Calling. This year, we partnered with Lincoln Calling to develop entrepreneurship programming for the festival. You do not need a festival ticket for those events, but the music lineup throughout the week is well worth buying a ticket. Learn more about the entire week by searching Lincoln Calling on Facebook or at lincolncalling.org. Use code LCDEAL8 at checkout for 20% off your ticket. Jeff, you've touched on working alongside both Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, and both those two are, um, are some of the greatest innovators of our time. More than you've already highlighted, in what ways were they similar and in what ways were they different? Of the two, uh, I think Steve, uh, I think, sorry, of the two, I think Bill was very much the better technologist. Uh, Bill has incredible uh, intellectual depth and breadth. And, you know, there's just very few people in the world that have that combination. And so his ability to understand the technical aspects of computing and software uh, was was quite impressive and, and frankly uh, in my opinion uh, beyond Steve Jobs especially in software uh, Steve on the other hand was 
a great product designer. He was a great thinker about elegant uh, product design. A great example was when he uh, was at Reed College or dropping out of Reed College. He sat in on a calligraphy class in, in at Reed, and it just—I think it just illustrates his love of the aesthetic. Uh, in design and you know he really brought that to computing especially to uh, the Macintosh that was kind of his look or his next company which mostly everybody's forgotten about now next computer uh, it was kind of this really beautiful black cube I mean it was just it was a stunning looking computing device and it was quite a business failure and you know, that's kind of, and, and Bill, I remember Bill Gates and I visited Steve when he was doing the next computer because he was trying to convince us to do software for the next computer. And again, you get you get dragged through the Steve Jobs reality distortion field about how great this computer is going to be and how it's going to transform computing in higher education and so on and so forth. And, you know, Bill's business acumen you know, he quickly figured out that the thing probably wasn't going to get much traction and we shouldn't be wasting our time doing software for the next computer. And so for the most part, we, we didn't do any, any software. So, you know, I'd say Steve was quite strong on product design, especially the aesthetic. Bill was quite deep on, on technology. In different ways, they both had a strong business uh, acumen and in different ways they were very good about articulating a vision of where computing or software uh, was going and um, you know I think Bill admired Steve's ability to uh, bring people along on that vision even if we might make fun of it and talk about it as the, the Steve Jobs reality distortion field I think there was an admiration in that com comment about how good Steve was at articulating uh, that vision of computing. And similarly, I would give Bill a lot of credit for his ability to see trends um, and form a vision around them, like the Internet. One time I was with Jack Welch, who at the time was the CEO of, of General Electric, and Jack said to me about Bill Gates that one of the marks of great CEOs is their ability to see around corners. In other words, to see that thing that nobody else can see yet and be able to plan the business in a way where you can use that as an opportunity. And, you know, that's one of those defining characteristics of Bill in terms of software, but it was also a defining characteristic of Steve Jobs in terms of, of hardware. When he came back to Apple Computer in the late 90s, uh, most people don't really remember that Apple was almost going bankrupt. In fact, Microsoft put a $175 million investment into Apple Computer to, to, that really helped keep it alive uh, around 1998. And I never would have predicted that Steve Jobs would have the transformative effect 
on Apple, this company that was really near death. And his, his vision for things like the iPod and the iPhone uh, and the, the design of the next generation of the Macintosh, those were the things that really turned Apple Computer around from being a company on the brink of death to being one of the largest uh, or highest valued companies in the world. And, you know, so that, that was a remarkable attribute of, of Steve Jobs. Jeff, switching gears a bit, early on in your career, you took your, uh, your farming and Midwestern perspective and developed uh, North 40 software. Could you both describe what that software was and um, tell a story of you developing and growing that, pro- that product? When I was at Microsoft, sorry, actually when I was at Apple Computer, it wasn't that distant from the time that I was working on tools to help my brother in running our farm. And of course, one of my, my aspirations was to take the things that I was doing to help my brother, which involved accounting software and spreadsheet analysis software and turn that into a business. And that's, and that's what I did. Uh, I had a partner, Steve Holtzman. He and I both worked at Apple Computer and Software. And Steve was an excellent programmer, and I was more his partner in terms of the product design and the business side. And so together, we created this little company uh, to do that kind of software. And then we had a friend in our, uh, and a colleague in software at Apple Computer, um, I'm trying to remember his first name. His last name was Eisen, Eisenberg. And we were trying to think of a name of, of the company. And he said, why don't you call it North 40 Software? And of course, for people who are more city oriented, they don't necessarily hear that term. But colloquially, that's the term that you use when somebody comes, calls up to talk to your dad and your dad's not around, so you say, oh, my dad's out on the North 40. Uh, it has to do with the, the, uh, <clears throat> the, the square miles and the, uh, the 160 acres, and then you break the, the quarter section down into quarters, and those are, uh, you know, so those are 40s, and so somebody could be out on the North 40. Uh, so... <laughs> uh, J.D. Eisenberg suggested that, you know, we call it North 40 Software. And so that's what we did. Uh, we thought that was kind of a fun name. And to this day, I've, ha- I've hung on to the North 40 uh, branding. But during the 1980s, then, we were selling a single-entry accounting system that would be very useful for farming as well as other businesses and a set of spreadsheets, uh, spreadsheet templates that were an analysis tool like hog feeder calculations or, you know, uh, cow-calf herd management. Those were spreadsheet templates that we sold to run on Lotus 123 and VisiCalc and, and MultiPlan. And that was our, our business and our 40 software. Earlier you mentioned not having enough time because you were so busy with Apple that your Microsoft interview had to take place on the weekends. How did you have time to develop the software while juggling a demanding job? Well, uh, that was the point in my life where most weeks were 70, 80-hour weeks. And 
you know, I we worked very hard at, at at Apple Computer, and then maybe there was a couple hours between ten and midnight where we think about what we wanted to do on on our software. I hired uh, a Stanford student that I knew to do the spreadsheet templates. Uh, Steve was doing the the writing of the uh, the, the accounting system. Uh, at night, uh, and then, uh, you know, I was thinking about the business and making business contacts at night. So this was truly moonlighting software. You had been described as the visionary behind Microsoft Office, and Microsoft Office now has 1.2 billion users. First, how did you think of the... um, Think of the idea behind Microsoft Office and then work with your team to implement such a broad vision. The, the opportunity to create Microsoft Office was a key part of my attraction to Microsoft. Working on VisiCalc, uh, the electronic spreadsheet at Apple Computer, I saw how powerful software could be in addressing the the challenges of information work or enhancing the way in which people could do information work. With the spreadsheet, you could see just how quickly people could get business problems modeled or uh, business analysis done way faster than the old-fashioned spreadsheets that were done on paper or other types of of, uh, paper-based tools. And so I was completely... In, in, entrenched in this idea that, that software was going to be fundamental to revolutionizing information work. And in addition to working on VisiCalc or the electronic spreadsheet at Apple Computer, I also worked on a word processor for the Apple III. And as I was doing that, it occurred to me that in the same way that you can develop uh, macros, uh, which is a term for a little bit of, of computer programming that can be done by the actual user, uh, the way in which you can do macros to, say, automate something in a spreadsheet, linking together a set of commands, why couldn't you do that a set across a set of information work tools, a spreadsheet, the word processor, the database, and so I had this vision that we were going to be able to do uh, programming, what I would say is user programming, across the set of office tools to be able to automate a lot of information work processes. And so when I first came to Microsoft, uh, part of my attraction was Microsoft was not only building a spreadsheet, which at that time was multi-plan, uh, but they were also looking at building word processing and database. And they had this concept that they called the multi-tools, the idea of a line of information work products. And I found that that uh, very intriguing. Um, but it wasn't until a few years later uh, that I really hit upon what I considered to be the most important aspects of Microsoft Office. At the time, 
software was sold in individual packages. You separately bought the spreadsheet from the word processor, from the database. And in fact, the dominant players in office application software were all separate companies. The word processor would come from WordPerfect or WordStar and the spreadsheet from Lotus and the database was from a company called Ashton Tate. Uh, and so I really saw the opportunity for Microsoft to uh, create this suite of office tools that had a consistent user experience and potentially could be uh, programmed for information work solutions and then sold in a single package. And, you know, that, that concept of the office suite really didn't develop until the late 1980s. And, and this is a case of where necessity is the mother of innovation. Uh, Microsoft uh, developed Multiplan to run, it was a spreadsheet and it ran on all kinds of different uh, personal computers. Uh, if you remember my uh, entrance or my interview at Microsoft, I saw all of these different computers. And Microsoft thought the way to win in software was to be the company that had a spreadsheet across all of those computers. And then in January of 1983, January 20th to be precise, uh, we learned that that was not the right strategy. Lotus 123 was launched. It only ran on the IBM PC, but it was the best spreadsheet on the IBM PC. And so what we learned was that customers really didn't care about whether the software they were buying ran on all different kinds of computers. What they wanted was the very best software on the computer they owned. And so shortly after Lotus 123 launched, we... Uh, created, we started the Microsoft Word project and the first version of Microsoft Word on the IBM PC was specifically designed to take advantage of features of the IBM PC. And so that was its distinguishing characteristic. But we saw that we had fallen way behind on on the spreadsheet side of the business. Lotus 1-2-3 was absolutely dominating and in October of 1983, we uh, started a new project. It was codenamed Odyssey, but it was a uh, very high-end electronic spreadsheet that would really take advantage of the IBM PC, and it would run on MS-DOS. And uh, in the spring of 1984, when the... Uh, Apple Macintosh had been introduced, as well as the continuing growth in Lotus 123 sales. I went to Bill Gates and I said, you know, Bill, I, I just don't want Lotus 123 head to head on MS-DOS and the IBM PC. You believe in graphic user interface, uh, the Macintosh, Microsoft Windows. Uh, we think that's the future of computing. We need to shift our spreadsheet work from the uh, MS-DOS over to the Macintosh. And, of course, Odyssey is really what we now know today as Microsoft Excel. And so in the spring of 1984, we made that pivot from uh, Microsoft, from MS-DOS over to the Macintosh and its graphic user interface. And so in 
the summer of 1985, uh, Excel was introduced on the Apple Macintosh, and it was the most powerful spreadsheet on any personal computer, even more powerful than uh, Lotus One Two Three on the IBM PC, and that then became the defining characteristic. So you see how we learned from the early mistake we made where we thought we would do software on all these computers, but then people would view it as lowest common denominator. And then we pivoted to producing the best spreadsheet on any microcomputer, and that was Excel on the Macintosh. And then, of course, that also gave us the experience with graphic user interface to help us with Windows. And so later in that decade, 1987, we introduced Microsoft Excel on Windows. Uh, so this is one of the things that I describe as the technology paradigm shift. In the situation here, you were going from character user interface, which was MS-DOS, to graphic user interface, which was Windows in the, in the Macintosh. And my view is that the opportunity to gain market share was most likely going to occur when there was a technology paradigm shift, as opposed to battling against an incumbent on the same footing. At the same time, I also hit upon the idea that we could transform the way in which people purchase uh, application software. And I went to our president, John Shirley, uh, and I said, what if we took three applications and put them together into a single box and sold them for the price of, of two applications. And that was the original office packaging, the idea that we would put three applications into a single package and price it for the price of two. And there were some people who thought that was kind of a crazy business idea that we were compromising on the value of the software. But John Shirley really liked it. Bill Gates really liked it. And so... In the late 80s, we introduced that combination. And we, of course, had the unique advantage because unlike Lotus, which was just a spreadsheet company, or Ashton Tate, which was just a database company, or Harvard Graphics, which was just presentation software, or WordPerfect, which was just word processing, we were the one company that could put all of the applications together into a single package. And so this is one of the most important lessons that I learned from that experience that I would share with entrepreneurs and innovators, that your greatest opportunity to um, create value is the combination of a technology paradigm shift paired with a business model transformation. So in this case, the move from MS-DOS to graphic user interface, and that's the technology paradigm shift and the move from a single application software to a suite of application software that transformed the business model. And it was those two uh, changes in parallel, that combination of the paradigm shift with the business model transformation that then created the business success that we know as Microsoft Office today. Up until that point in time, Microsoft was an also-ran uh, in application software. By 1995, 
uh, Microsoft Office Suite was by far and away the primary way in which people purchased application software. And now to this day, you know, it's probably a 15 to $20 billion um, uh, franchise. So in terms of uh, franchises, it's one of the most valuable business franchises in the world. But it was really that combination of those two things that led to that success or catalyzed that success. Jeff, you've spent significant time energy and resources investing into uh, technology in the Midwest between uh, Huddle, EpiCrop, and then the Rake School. Why? I I feel very fortunate that I grew up on a farm in Nebraska. Uh, My early life on the farm shaped my, uh, my values things that I care about, my work ethic, my passion for what you do, my sense of, of community. Uh, I have a deep love for uh, Nebraska and Midwestern values, and so I've always tried to be connected, even though I've lived on the West Coast for most of my, my life now. I still go back to Nebraska multiple times a year. We still have our family farm and feedlots. We um, you know, we have a house, a uh, second home on the edge of our farm, which I love to, to be at. So I have a real love uh, for Nebraska and a real appreciation uh, for Nebraska and the people of Nebraska. When the university asked me to design a world-class computer science program in anticipation of a gift in the late 1990s, um, I was very fortunate to hit upon a different type of idea which was based on a concept I learned at Stanford University, which is interdisciplinary education. And so it was the Rake School was the idea that we could create this very special honors program that would be interdisciplinary education of computer science and software engineering and business management and leadership, and that we could attract the very best talent uh, in the Midwest, the, the kids that would go off to elite research universities like MIT or Stanford, but instead would, would go to the Rake School and have this unique interdisciplinary education. And uh, honestly, the Rake School has outperformed uh, even my wildest expectations. The, the kids that are coming into the Rake School are roughly equivalent to the same type of talent that goes to MIT or Stanford. And I think that is a great credit to those students, but also to the university creating uh, that program. So for me, that investment is is both a way to pay, you know, give back or pay it forward, however you want to think about the metaphor, uh, and to do something that I think is very special for Nebraska. And, and Huddle's a very interesting outgrowth of the Rake School. Uh, in, I think it was January of 2006, I went to the Rake School and I said, can we have the Rake School students do something to help the Husker football team? Uh, I have deep loyalty to Nebraska, the university, and especially Husker athletics. And I was disappointed by the performance of the football team. So I said, hey, what could we do to help the Husker football team? And I had a particular idea that had been seated with me 
that wasn't a very good one, and that was the idea of using then Xbox technology to simulate game situations. Uh, you know, that was really something that, that the, t- the technology wasn't quite ready for that. But three of the students from the Rake School came to me with a business idea that <clears throat> involved the I, uh, the ability to break down game or practice video and do electronic playbooks. And, you know, I thought that was, that was interesting. Uh, I wasn't really sure how successful it would be, but I said, look, I'll give you the money to get the company started, but here's my, my constraints. Uh, my teams are Nebraska and Stanford, so therefore you're not allowed to sell to Texas, Notre Dame, Michigan, or USC. Uh, and uh, uh, they said, okay. <laughs> and, and, and for about 18 months, we lived by that, that rule, and ultimately, uh, you know, rationality set in, and, and so... While we still have a love, uh, a special place in our heart for the Huskers in Stanford, uh, we are open for business for, for any of the other uh, teams. And now Huddle supports roughly 200,000 sports teams around the world, more than 5 million athletes, an annual run rate of greater than $100 million, so almost you know 10 times the size of Microsoft when I joined Microsoft. So... You know, my, my ability to be associated with Huddle and especially the three founders, uh, David Graff, John Wirtz, and Brian Kaisers, has been one of my, my greatest pleasures. But it, it, it has to do with incredible talent coming out of the rake school and the ability for that talent to go out and create disruptive innovation. And what you see in Huddle do is bet on a technology paradigm shift combined with business model uh, transformation to revolutionize uh, sports video uh, technology. And so I'm very, very proud of the company and especially those leaders. They have done a fabulous job in building something that is very special, a very special company and business that is headquartered right there in Lincoln, Nebraska. And then I met a professor, uh, well, actually, ironically, Sally McKenzie was the Ralph and Alice Rakes professor of plant sciences, so it was a good thing I met Sally. Uh, And Sally, uh, after a few years, I started to learn more about her work, and she's hit on something that's incredibly important, and that is the way in which we can... Um, leverage the new field of epigenetics, an, an understanding of how genes express themselves, in particular plants, in ways that I think are likely to revolutionize crop breeding. Uh, I, I think what uh, they're doing at Epicrop, which is the company that is productizing Sally's work, um, it may actually be the most significant breakthrough in crop breeding in the first half of this century. And that's very exciting. And that comes from research that was done at the University of Nebraska. And so uh, when Sally and her um, uh, business partner, Michael Fromm, now the CEO of Epicrop, came to me with 
the idea of how to productize it. They were thinking that they would go and get some investments from uh, the big uh, ag companies uh, like Monsanto. And I got one of my friends, Doug Burgum, who's now the governor of North Dakota, to join me and say, hey, don't, don't, don't go ahead and turn the technology over to those big companies. Let's, let's take some time to see if what we can do is create a, an independent company that has the ability to leverage epigenetics for a wide range of, of crop uh, breeding uh, companies. And that's what Epicrop is doing, and they're located in Lincoln, Nebraska. So, you know, not only am I grateful for my uh, ability to grow up in, in Nebraska and the lessons and values that I learned growing up in Nebraska, I feel incredibly grateful that I've been able to be connected with some amazing people, uh, you know, to make these investments and see them come to light. And along the way, I've, I've uh, developed deep friendships with people like Clay Smith and, and Mike Dunlap, who've, who've partnered with me on, on these in investments. And, and so I, I just have a lot of gratitude for uh, my connections uh, to Nebraska. All right, Jeff, last question for you. How do we get more kids from rural America to use technology to solve problems around them? Technology is an incredible uh, tool for transformation, and we've seen that especially in uh, PC and Internet technology over the last three decades or four decades. Um, I would say that there are three pillars to how we get more youth in rural America to use technology for the, the, to solve the problems around them. Number one, they have to have access to the education. You know, I hope kids in rural America are learning about computers and programming and getting the opportunity to learn how to, how to do software. Number two, you need to have access to the technology tools. You need to be able to have access to computers and software. So it's not just learning about them, it's being able to have day-to-day -day access with, with computers and software. And the third thing is bandwidth, internet bandwidth. You, be, you have to have high-speed bandwidth. And one of my concerns about rural America is will, will those youth growing up have the same access to the same types of technology and bandwidth that kids in cities do across the country? And I think that's one of the important things. If you have those three pillars, then I have great faith that the youth of rural America will be leveraging technology to make the world a better place. Well, Jeff, thank you for taking uh, taking the time to share your perspective. I greatly appreciate it. That will do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. We would love for you to subscribe to our channel and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also like The Commonwealth on Facebook and follow Alec and I on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. We release episodes on Mondays, so stay tuned for next week.